You're listening to Nightlight. Hi, and a warm welcome to another international edition of Nightlight. With me once again on the program is David Caron, who's speaking to us from Paris in France, where he's currently visiting. David's actually French by nationality. His mother's French and his father is Indian. And he's newly married to a Swedish wife. And Sweden is the country he's been living in for the past couple of years. I'm British, although my mother was Polish and my father Welsh. And my wife is Japanese. And I was speaking to David in France from the beautiful Sesi Islands on Lake Victoria in Uganda, East Africa. And we're speaking to listeners in over 60 countries of the world. So this truly is an international show. Nightlight. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. David, so nice to have you with us once again on the program. Hi, Simon. It's good to be back. Uh, this is this is a real privilege. It's, I got to say one of my favorite things I do. So thanks for having me. Our mutual friend, Nadia, who has been following your weekly classes on Zoom, and, and she's just so excited about the classes you've been teaching on the book of Matthew. And I'm hoping that maybe you could teach one of those classes on the program today. Oh, for sure. I've spent the last probably about five months in the book of Matthew, just totally taking it apart and looking at all the different details in there, both from a historical context and from a Jewish context, and also from the context of ancient Hebrew and Greek literature. Wow. The reason I've been doing that is because Matthew is such a fundamental book for us when it comes to our Christian faith. And it really contains a lot of basic foundational truths that we as followers of Jesus build our life upon. You know, in the book of Matthew, we have everything from the Sermon on the Mount to the stories of Jesus' birth, to the parables about the kingdom, to the prophecies of Matthew 24, right. to Jesus talking about his coming kingdom in Matthew chapter 25 and the separation and they find the final judgment. It's also there where we get the most comprehensive stories about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Matthew, in terms of literary just literary content, Matthew is the longest book of the New Testament. It's it's a pretty mammoth work, and there's a lot of incredible things in there. And as soon as you come to the Lord, or as soon as you become a Christian, the first thing you start doing is reading from the Gospels. And generally, you'll read the Gospel of John first, and then you'll make your way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then so on. And so because we we've read this so many times and not only read it so many times we've also pulled out so many stories from there and shared them in sermons in sunday schools we've put them on greeting cards we've made them into cartoons for our kids to watch they've been put into flannel graphs they're just everywhere right and so because of that since a lot of these stories have been spread around and we're so familiar with them a lot of the true deep message and meaning kind of gets lost because we don't look at it as one unified narrative we tend to see it in broken bits and pieces and because we are so familiar with it and we're so used to you reading different portions at different times like for example we read the stories of Matthew chapters two and three during Christmas time. And then we read usually Matthew five, six, and seven 
as a way of behaving in Christ, you know, Christian ethics and those are the Beatitudes and the blessings. And we see, oh, we want to be salt and light, all that's so great and wonderful. And then we read the parables on their own and break them down. But every single one of those stories connect to each other and they were there for a particular reason. Because Matthew, when he wrote the book of Matthew, he wrote it as a biography right. about Jesus. But he wrote it in a very interesting way. He did not write it to be like an actual literal diary of Jesus' life. That was not the purpose of writing the book of Matthew. The reason why we know this is because Matthew kind of tends to jump around the place a lot and skip large portions of time and not really mention certain aspects of it, and yet only focus on certain portions of Jesus's life. So he spends about three chapters talking about one major block of Jesus's teaching, but then one verse talking about 16 years of Jesus's life. And there's a lot of stories that are included in other gospels that are kind of missed in this particular gospel. So a lot of people look at it and they have questions about it. And so I think it's important, and this is one thing that I've really enjoyed through doing my research and give credit where credit is due. I've been standing on the shoulders of giants with this particular thing. I've been, I've read about 42 books so far this year on this particular topic from wow. many experts who are so much more qualified than I. And I've just been digging it up and kind of just understanding it and seeing it with new eyes. Inspiring you to dig deeper into God's Word. You're listening to Nightlight. David, before we go on, you mentioned that you've read 42 books on the book of Matthew. That must have taken some considerable time. How do you organize your day to include sufficient time for all the reading and research needed to prepare your classes? I generally put about two hours a day in study either in reading mm -hmm. or listening to something or doing some particular research. Interesting. And then generally about eight hours of my Fridays mm -hmm. are spent um, preparing for the week's teaching because I, I teach every week on Saturday on Zoom. And this is the series that we're working through. So about eight hours on a Friday and another eight hours on Saturday. So that's 16 hours for between those two days and the other five days a week, another two hours. So I'd say about 26 hours a week. Wow. I mean, I've been teaching this since April. And so it's been about, what, four months now? And we're only halfway through chapter five. Gosh. But it's been a wonderful journey of really unpacking and getting the most out of it. So I encourage you, if you get the opportunity, to look up these classes on Patreon and any of the listeners want to get be a part of it as well, they're more than welcome to. But today I wanted to teach a segment from that. And that segment that I wanted to teach is from Matthew chapter two. Okay. Beginning of Matthew chapter two. These are stories that we generally associate and save for like Christmas time. Uh, when I first started doing it and I first started presenting it on my Zoom calls, people were like, why, why are we doing Christmas in summertime? This doesn't make any sense. But I think that's, that's something that we need to address because if we only get around to these stories at Christmas time or we only save them for the one time a year that we read them, we lose a lot of important messages that it's trying to present. That's a good point. And I think one of the most special messages that come out of this particular passage and this particular story, it kind of shows us that to today, 
there people have very different responses to truth and those responses that people have to truth nowadays when they receive it and when they're faced with the reality about who Jesus is and what he's done those responses are exactly the same as they were 2000 years ago and so i think looking at how people responded 2000 years ago kind of throws light on how we should be responding today so that's what i wanted to unpack with you and i hope i hope that you enjoy it simon and i hope your listeners enjoy it as well it's never completely dark when you're listening to nightlight so let's go ahead and start with um, Matthew chapter 2. If you want, can you please read verse 1 for us, Simon? Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Okay, so we are going to the famous story of Jesus and the wise men. Now we read the story and generally we see the story acted out in like the Christmas pageant. You know, we have Mary and we have Joseph and there's baby Jesus. And then there are these wise men that come wandering out on the stage and they're carrying these funnily wrapped packages. (laughs) And usually the three kids who are doing the Christmas play, one of them will pronounce very loudly, oh, this is for you, this is gold. And the other person will pronounce, you know, this is for you, this is myrrh. And a third person will always be like very, (laughs) very confused and stumbling because frankincense is not really easy word to pronounce. So they'll usually stumble through it. And then the audience will laugh and giggle. And that's about all the attention we put into the story. (laughs) It's kind of interesting that we just kind of assume it on face value and say, oh, okay, well, that's the story of what it is. But when you actually stop and think about it, okay, let's just pause for a minute. There is a random child born in a random part of the ancient world and what was generally known as the not very nice region of the ancient world. Like Judea was never considered to be a place of greatness. It was always considered to be one of the troublesome outposts of whatever empires that were there. Right. It had lost its independence after it had been conquered by the Babylonians, and then they were sent back, and then they were again conquered by the Persians, and then after the Persians, then they were conquered again by the Greeks, and then they were under Greek authority for a while, and then under another empire, and then finally they gained independence for that for a few years, and then the Romans subjugated it, and so it was always seen as like an outside province that was not very important to the rest of the world. You know, the centers of the world were in Persia. The centers in the world were in Babylon. The centers of the world at this time were in Rome. The centers of the world in education were down in Egypt. And so these were the main centers of the world. And so a lot of people, they grow up thinking about this story. And they're like, oh, that's so nice. You know, there's, you know, Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the wise men, and this is interesting. Then you get up a bit earlier, they grow up, and then they start thinking, and they're like, wait a minute. Are you serious? I mean, come on. A random star appeared in the sky, and then that was enough to make these wise men travel across the desert for almost two years to come and visit this random child born in some random place. That sounds like a fiction. That sounds like a myth. And then so they explain it away, and the story kind of loses its importance. And so I think that in order for us to actually get the message out of it, we really got to get into it and understand exactly what it is talking about. Yes. So just to set the scene, this is in the beginning of the first century AD. Now, the last recorded words of God to the people of Israel 
was the prophet Malachi. Right. And the prophet Malachi had a very strong message to give to the children of Israel, where he basically told them that God's upset. You know, things are not going very well. You have gone back on all the promises. You have not kept the covenant. God has looked out for you. God, God brought you back from captivity and you still keep messing things up. The next time that God speaks to you, it's going to be through the mouth of the Lord. So he actually prophesies that the next time God's going to speak to them, it's going to be God himself speaking to them. Right. And he says that he's going to come as a raging fire. And he's going to come as a refiner of silver. He's going to come as a purifier of soap. And he's going to come to actually pass on judgment. And he's going to come to set things right. And that was the last message that any of the prophets ever received from God. That was 400 years before this event. When you read the Bible from page to page and cover to cover, 400 years doesn't seem like a large amount of time because you know, we tend to gloss over those blocks of time periods. It's true. So like the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Okay, now that's one page, turn it, and now comes the story of Moses. But when you stop to think about it in actuality, that's a huge gap of time. I mean, just to put it in context, the United States gained independence as the world's largest democracy 243 years ago. So when you think about that, 400 years is a very, very long time. It's true. I mean, if you just jump back 400 years ago, like 400 years ago, we still did not understand the laws of gravity or the laws of motion. Gosh. We still did not understand the basics of mathematics, which was given to us by Jonas Kepler because he hadn't discovered that yet. You know, 400 years is a very long time. And for children of Israel who were used to constantly having prophets speak to them and having God pass his message on to them, because you see the lineage of through the Hebrew scriptures, the lineage of the Old Testament of God speaking to his children for about 400 years of silence, that was a very major thing. And so there was this apprehension that the next time that he would show up, the next time that they would hear anything would be from the mouth of God himself, but it wasn't going to be something that was you know, calming and pleasing to them, it would be something that came out like a raging fire and something that came as a refiner of silver, as someone who came to purify the land. And so they were waiting for that. And I find it kind of funny that the next time that anyone ever speaks, because we jump from Malachi to Matthew, the next time anyone ever speaks, it is God himself in the person of Jesus. That's right. But he's there as a small baby. And so... That's where the story begins. After all this time of waiting, Jesus is born. But then we're told something interesting. We're told that there's wise men that come from the east. There are these magi that come from the east. And they come to Jerusalem and they're asking, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? Okay, first of all, who are these magi? Where did the magi come from? Okay, the magi were part of the Persian Empire. Now, if you've studied history, or at least you've studied biblical history, you've done the Daniel chapter 2 class, you will know that after the Babylonian Empire, there arose the kingdom of the Persians. But the kingdom of the Persians first came out as a unity of two separate tribes. You had the Medes and you had the Persians. And the Persians were more warlike. They were very good at battle. 
But the Medes were more intelligent. They were more involved with the science. They were more involved with kind of like the ruling of it. And so the tribe of the Medes came from this place in um, modern day Iran called Parthia. And so about the time the empire of Persia was coming into provenance, these two tribes that had originally been allies, they started having a bit of issues amongst each other. And so they came to an agreement. They said that the Medes decided that, look, we will never assume the throne. No one from the tribe of the Medians would want to become ruler of the empire. But what we will do, we will act as advisors to the kings. We will act as scientists to the kings. We will act as guides to the kings because we can interpret the heavens. We can look at the science. And so we can look at mathematics. We can generally determine the wills of the, of the gods basically on what's happening from what we see in the weather and what we see in the sky and what we see from the planets and what we see from the stars. And so we will be there to be your guide, but you will rule. Interesting. And with that arrangement, the Persian Empire kind of grew very large. And then, as we know, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire until it was con eventually conquered by Alexander the Great. But the Magi stayed very much influential through that whole time. Hmm. In fact, interestingly enough, after Alexander conquered Persia, he sent groups of Magi back to Greece in order to teach the people there who were very good at philosophy and natural sciences. He, was, he wanted to teach them about understanding the stars and understanding the planets and understanding how all those things had some connection into the will of the gods for their lives. And so we kind of had this idea that, you know, magi kind of meant that they were like fortune tellers or sorcerers or magicians, but they weren't. These were people who were highly skilled in the arts of philosophy, medicine, natural science, understanding the movement of the heavenly bodies and the stars. And they were globally respected all the way through the time of the Roman Empire as well. Interesting. And another interesting fact, there is evidence from old writings, especially the writings that were given to us by uh, Herodotus. Now, Herodotus is known as the father of history. He was the one who put together the first historical works that we still have access to today. And so a lot of our understanding of the ancient world from that period is taken from his very detailed encyclopedic knowledge that he put together. And so he talks about the Magi. And interesting enough, there's some evidence in his works that suggests that actually Daniel had a major role to do with setting up the great school of Magi that was there in Parthia. Because remember, what happened is Daniel, after Babylon was conquered by the Persians, Darius put Daniel in charge of the wise men and the rulers and the governors. Yes, he did. And so there is evidence also from Herodotus's book that says that Daniel was also quite influential in setting up the great school of the Magi, which was there in Parthia. And so about the time of the Roman Empire, the Magi would travel to different places. And we have about four different historical documents from Roman people in the first century that talk about Magi visiting people at 
different times. Hmm. So, for example, there is a historical document that talks about Magi who came to visit the Roman Emperor Nero at the time of his coronation. There is another historical document which talks about Magi being present in the court when the Emperor Octavian declared himself Augustus or the first ruler of the Roman Empire. And so these Magi were present there at big major events. And whenever there would be major events, they would go there and make their presence felt and make their presence known. And a lot of a lot of the rulers of the world at that time would look to them because they would be people of influence that they could rely on and depend upon. And they usually knew if they had them there, they would have sound advice. Okay, so now why are these Magi going to Judea? Why are they just getting up and riding for two years across the world to an unknown place? Right. Well, you have to realize that at this point, things in the world were on a knife's edge. The nice thing about history and the nice thing about the technology that we have nowadays, like for example, the cool thing about the technology that NASA has is that it can actually map the stars and through using a mathematical formulas, they can actually jump forward 2000 years or backward 2000 years and look at how the sky looked at that particular point. And the reason why they need to be able to do this is because if they're launching if they're launching a spacecraft that is going to be traveling for a certain amount of distance, they have to know where the celestial bodies are going to be positioned. So that way, after five years, it doesn't end up crashing into a star somewhere. Right. They have to get the math exactly correct. And so because they, they've managed to do map out this math so accurately, you can actually look at through programs that NASA has. You can pull up the way the sky is going to look in 2000 years from now or go back and look at how the sky looks in 2000 years from now and then also through studying stuff like seismology we understand the pattern of earthquakes of how it's been and so interestingly enough just within 10 years before jesus was born there was a lot of crazy things happening around that time we know that in 11 bc Halley's comet was visible and was visible for quite a while. We know in about 7 BC, there was a very brilliant conjunction of both Saturn and Jupiter, and that resulted, well, I wouldn't say resulted, but there was a very large earthquake in the Mesopotamian region around that same time, and they believed that it was connected to that. And there was about four very distinct astrological anomalies that happened between the years 2 to 5 BC. And so there was a lot of things going on in the sky at that time that kind of put the Magi on alert that something big is going to happen. They didn't know what, but they knew that something was going to happen at some point. And while it might seem to us extraordinary that they decided that the thing to happen was going to happen in Judea, but interestingly enough, there was a Roman historian named Suetonius. And Suetonius wrote a work which we still have available to us today. It was called The Life of Vespasian, and it covers multiple volumes. And in Suetonius's work, he says this particular passage, and I quote, he said, there had spread over all of the Orient and all of the Roman Empire an old and established belief 
that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Interesting. This is from a Roman historian. There is another Roman historian, Tacticus. And Tacticus writes also in his work, in his book of histories, he says that there was a firm persuasion around the time of the end of the first couple of years BC and the first few years AD, he says that there was a firm persuasion that from this time, the area of Judea was to grow powerful and rulers from that region were to acquire a universal empire. Wow. And Josephus in his book, which he wrote, The Wars of the Jews, which he chronicled the fall of Jerusalem and he chronicled a lot of the, the last days of the nation of Israel before it was destroyed and dispersed by the Romans. In his book, he talks about how there was a belief that at one time, one country in that region should become governor of the entire habitable earth. And we have another place from the poet Virgil, who was also very well known by the Romans. And he also declared that it was common knowledge amongst the people at that moment in time to be looking for a global king, which is why when Augustus declared himself ruler of the Roman Empire, the first ruler, he wrote a whole volume of poetry declaring him as the king of the world and linking up all these prophecies, the prophecies from the East, the prophecies from the kingdom of Persia, the prophecies, even from some of the prophecies from the Jewish prophets and scriptures, link them up in his poetry to say that this was Augustus and he was the one who was going to be king of the world. Really? And interesting enough, like we said, at the coronation of Augustus, there were magi present and they came to see if this really was the person. So once we have all that evidence from history, from actual historical sources, when we hear that these magi, these very intelligent, very skilled, highly educated and highly respected and sought after people would see something in the sky that would cause them to go all the way to Judea to look for a newborn baby. It's actually not just plausible, it is highly probable that's exactly what they would do. And so that's the historical side to it. But I think from a spiritual side to it, it also, it, it has a very interesting meaning for us. And I think the most important meaning that I would get from this is that if people are searching for God, God always shows up. Amen. And this is something that you can see in many places, in many cultures. Like you go around and you read the stories of people around the world who, who found the Lord. A lot of them had no clue about who God was or who Jesus was or any sort of information whatsoever. But they would say that they were searching and then they had a dream. They had a vision and they saw, you know, a man dressed in white. Some of them saw a man who had wounded hands and wounded feet. They would see many different things. And then when they would come across later on a Bible or they'd come across a, something about the story of Jesus, they would say, oh, I know this because I have seen it. 
this has been revealed to me. And I'm sure, Simon, you know, especially being there in the part of world of the world that you're in, you probably hear tons of these stories all the time. And that's because I clearly believe that when people are searching for God, God will show up to them because that's what he has promised. Shining bright in the dark night, you're listening to Nightlight. Can you look up, Simon, can you look up Romans chapter 1, verse 19? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Simon. So what Paul says in that, Paul says that, look, from the beginning of time, God has revealed himself also in the world that he has created. And if people are genuinely searching, Paul says that God's quality and divine nature is visible in things that we see, and it can lead us to him. And so it's perfectly logical that the Magi are over there looking at the stars, and the stars point them towards the baby Jesus. And why, why should that not happen? Because, you know, the, the stars belong to God, right? Everything in this world belongs to him. He can use whatever he wants to bring people towards him. And I find that so encouraging because if people are actually open-heartedly searching for him, the Lord opens the doors and people actually can find him, even in the most obscure and unexpected ways. So that's the Magi. Those are the first characters of the story. Let's look at the second character of the story. Can you please read back to Matthew chapter 2 and read verses 2 and 3? Saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So the next character we're introduced to is this guy named Herod. Now, Herod was a very interesting character. Okay, first of all, Herod is not even fully Jewish. Herod was half Jewish, half Arab. And even in the part, the side of him that was Jewish, it wasn't fully Jewish. It was partially Jewish, partially, partially Edomite. Hmm. Now, if you want to go back and dig up all those historical ancestral bloodlines, you've got to go back to the book of Genesis. But basically, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And they had their own kingdom. They had their own place. They were friends of Israel for the longest time until they became mortal enemies after the destruction of Jerusalem when they started preying upon the people who were left behind. And so there were long periods of mistrust between the two of them. And so here you have a guy whose name is Herod, who is partially Jewish, partially Arab, and partially Edomite. Who, which, which are the sworn enemy, one of the sworn enemies of the children of Israel. And he's there as king. What is he doing as king over Israel? Well, first of all, we have to kind of unknow what king is because Israel is an occupied territory at this time. They are under the rule of the Romans. Right. And there was a large civil war that broke out, I think, around the late 50s BC, 
in the region of Judea and Palestine. And so the Roman army was sent to put, get it under control. The person who supported the Romans during this time was Herod. And so after Herod threw in his support with the Roman armies to help to crush the rebellion and end the civil war, which ended in the destruction and loss of life for a lot of the people of Israel at that time, as a reward, they made him governor in 47 BC. And in 40 BC, they made him king. And from 40 BC till about 1 AD or 4 BC, we're not, the historical records kind of vary on that, but he was in power and ruled until then. So he had a very long rule. He had a rule for almost 40 years in power. And he is known in historical circles as Herod the Great. That was his title. And why was he given the title Herod the Great? It's because he deserved that title. He was one of the greatest rulers that that region could have had under the circumstances that they were in, because he was a great politician and he was great at setting um, deals and good at getting people on his side. And so the Romans really liked him because he could keep peace in the area and he would be able to give concessions to Rome. And so he was able to negotiate a peace between Rome and the area of Judea and Palestine that was not there previously when they were having constant civil wars. And he brought order. He brought um, Roman law and made sure that Roman law was established in Jerusalem and within the surrounding countryside, which, of course... The, if you, you can imagine, the children of Israel hated because they were under the Torah, right? They were under the Sinai Covenant. They had their own laws, and now their laws had been superseded by the Roman laws, which Herod the Great was influential in bringing. Right. But because of this peace that he had bartered between Rome and because of his great diplomatic abilities and the fact that he was a very good politician, he was actually able to get some funding from Rome to start developing that part. And so he... He built Jerusalem up as well. He built the temple, the temple of Herod the Great, which was a temple that was eventually destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And he um, developed the walls, started building outlying cities. And as an exchange for that, he had to give certain portions of Judea as a tribute to the Romans to then set up occupied outposts. So which is why around the area of, of the Sea of Galilee, you know, you have towns like Cana and you have towns like Nazareth. And then you got Roman towns like Capernaum and Tiberias. Interesting. Because these were colonized, occupied cities where they had cleared out the inhabitants and the Romans usually retired families living on military pensions, people who had served the army for about 25 years, the way the Romans would pay them was to give them land. And so they would move into these places that had been cleared out. All the occupants have been kicked out. And now the Romans were living in these, in these two different cities. And that was part of the concessions that Herod the Great had worked out with Rome. So he was a great diplomat. He was a great politician. And he was good at establishing the peace. But Herod had one very distinct character flaw. He was always suspicious. He was always sure that someone was going to usurp him. Someone was going to take his throne. And so no one around him was safe. 
nobody around him was safe. If he was slightly suspicious of you, he would kill you. Gosh. From documented history, we know that he had between 10 to 17 wives. Out of that, he killed one of his wives and at least three of his mother-in-laws Gosh. on suspicion of, tri- of a plot to overthrow his kingdom. He also executed his three oldest sons. Gosh. Two of them just a couple of days before he died under suspicion that they were trying to take the kingdom from him. He had a large number of kids. Historical sources uh, vary on the exact number of kids that he had, but he executed his three oldest at different times because of the suspicion that he had that they were going to come after his kingdom. And so he ruled with this rod of iron almost, where he was a great diplomat, but everyone around him was scared because he was, in his anger, could lash out very quickly. In fact, Augustus, the Roman emperor, actually is documented saying that it was better to be a pig in Herod's house than to be one of his sons, because at least the pigs were safer. Gosh. That was an old joke in, um, the, in the courts of Augustus, because everyone was very suspicious about this guy. And he became such a hated character that before he died, he knew that people were not going to miss him. He knew that people were not going to feel sad that he was dead. And so what he did the year before his death, he left Jerusalem, retired to Jericho, and he made a rule. He wrote into law that on the day of his death, All the most distinguished families in Jericho and in Jerusalem, one member of that family should be killed in the street. Gosh. So then at least there would be weeping in the nation. Even if they weren't weeping for him, at least they were weeping for somebody because he was so sure that no one would cry at his death. And so he signed an order that the moment I die, all the influential families in these two cities one member of the family must be executed in the street, so at least some people will cry. Man. So when you imagine this kind of character, it makes sense that instantly when he hears about a new king, how is he going to respond? Right. He's going to be threatened, and he's going to be angry, and he's going to want to find out who it is so he can get rid of them as fast as possible. This guy who would not spare his own sons or his wives or his mothers-in-laws. How do you think he would have spared someone who's just randomly born and who people are proclaiming king? And so Herod is the second character that we get. This person who's fought for his power, this person who has schemed for his power, this person who has taken everything that he's got and fought for everything that he's got. And he's finally in a place of power and he fights to keep it. And now he is exposed to this news that there is a new king. Shining bright through the dark night. You're listening to Nightlight. But there's other characters in the story too that we have to look at before we bring this to a summary. Can you go and keep reading uh, chapter 2 with verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Okay, so now we are presented with the third characters in the story. These are the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, there are two distinct categories. One were experts in the law, and therefore they had administrative work both within the temple and outside within the civil courts. And so they were looked up to and had spheres of influence in that they told people what was God's will for them to do. And they also arbitrated on various issues that would come up and they'd be the ones to deal with it. So those were the, the scribes. And then you had the Pharisees who were the religious leaders. They were the ones who held office in the temple. They were the ones who would mediate between God and the people. They were the ones responsible also for holding the Holy Council, and they would pronounce final verdict on anything that happened within the kingdom of what was the will of God based upon what he had revealed through his scriptures, through the Sinai Covenant, through the Torah, and all of that. And so these are very high-ranking, influential people who have both legal power and also spiritual power. And so Herod calls them in and Herod says, where is this king supposed to be born? Because there's magi here, these influential people who have ridden down for two years, and they're asking me, where is this guy? Who is it? Where is it? And they instantly reply, oh, okay, well, he is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote it. They quote to him from the book of, of Micah. In Micah chapter five, verse two, they say, yeah, this is where he is. This is where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod says, okay, let me go figure that out. So then Herod goes and has a conversation with the Magi and says, this is where he's supposed to be found. First of all, he asked them, when did you see the star? When did you see it? Exactly at what point? And we find out later that the reason why he asked that is because he was looking at the time frame of lives of people of ages where he would have to go and execute them. And so he found out the time frame, and then he said, go over there, find out, come back and give me word, so that way I also can go and worship him. Okay, to bring this in, what's the lesson out of this? What's the point of the story for all of us? I think that, as Malachi said, Malachi said that the very next time that people were going to hear the truth, they were going to hear it from God himself because God himself was going to step into the world. And when he was going to step into the world, he was going to bring the truth along with him. In the whole of Matthew chapter one, Matthew is presenting Jesus as that, as the Messiah, as the king who is coming into the world to be God with us, to be that king, to be that ruler. And so there are three very distinct responses to the when we encounter truth, when we encounter the sovereignty, when we encounter God. Because when Jesus comes in as king, that means something. If God is king, I am not king anymore. Right. 
if God is Lord of all, then I am no longer Lord of my own life. If God's truth is truth, then it is true in every sphere, and I am not the one who determines what is true for me. There is now a new truth that I have to follow. There is a new law that I have to follow. There is a new Lord that I have to embrace and follow. And so to say that Christ is Lord is to say that I am not going to be Lord anymore. That's right. When we stop and pray, thy kingdom come, what we have to then say next is our kingdom go. Because in order for Christ's kingdom to come, our kingdom has got to go. In order for Christ to be Lord, we can't be Lord anymore. And that is the reality that is contained in the message of Jesus. He provides salvation. He provides forgiveness for our sins. He provides a way out of all our mistakes and all the things that we've ever done wrong. He gives us a new way to live, and he gives us the promise of eternity with God. Praise God. But what he also brings with him is expectation that as a citizen of his kingdom, we will then acknowledge him as Lord and live like one of those citizens of his kingdom. And so it's a very strong statement that Jesus is making here and that Jesus has always made. And as Jesus said multiple times in the gospel, if anyone to come after me, they need to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not, I love you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Now I'm going to do my own thing. It's like, no, now I'm going to follow you. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to serve you? What does it look like for me to live as a child of God here in this world? What does it look like for me to live under the rule and reign of Jesus as my Lord and Savior? And not many people take the time to do that. That's right. As Paul says in the New Testament, he says, you have made Christ your Savior, but have you made him your Lord? Is we've accepted the fact that he saved us, but then we still want to do our own things. We still want to be Lord of our own life. We still want to be the ones in authority and control. But the reality of Jesus coming as king means that what it requires is our surrender. And not just the surrender of our hearts when we ask him to come in and change our lives, but also the surrender of our minds and the surrender of our will. Amen. And so with that statement in mind, it's very easy to see that there are three very distinct reactions to that. The first reaction, which most people take, is the reaction of Herod. How dare there be another king? How dare there be another authority? How dare there be anyone who imagines to tell me that my life is not my own and I have to listen to another authority and another truth. There cannot, there should not, there must not. And I will do anything to stop that from happening. And so their response is that of anger. Their response is almost that of violence to try to stop this from being true. And if you look out in the world today, you will see this response happening everywhere. Absolutely. Where people will go to such incredible lengths to discredit every single truth 
about who Jesus is because they don't want him to be Lord of their life. They don't want to believe in him. They don't want to accept him. And they want as much as possible to discredit him so no one else will do that. It's true. As the famous new atheist Christopher Hitchkins says, there is no God and I hate him. Gosh. You know, that, that, that is the response. I don't want there to be that higher power, but if there is a higher power, I will hate it because I don't want there to be any other ruler. A lot of people, they have ambition. A lot of people, they have things that they want to do with their lives. They've fought to get themselves to where they are today. And so now that they would have, that means that they would have to surrender to another will greater than theirs. It's something that they don't want to accept. However, if you understand the story of humanity, you will know that what happens when we follow our own way and our own will is nothing but pain, hurt, and destruction. Every single choice that has ever been made to look out for one's own good in this world has resulted in someone getting hurt, someone being treated unfairly, someone ending up with pain. And therefore, every decision that we take out of pride and out of selfishness makes this world a little bit more worse. And so Jesus comes in to redeem the world save the world and to show us how we were originally supposed to live in a way that produces peace and not conflict, in a way that produces love and not hate, in a way that produces hope. But in order for us to live that way, we need to then pray, not my will, but thine be done. And there are those who will never pray that. In fact, they will stand bloody and unbowed and say, not your will, but mine be done. And how dare you have a will? That's who we see in Herod. It's true. But we see another group of people. And these people are a little bit more hidden. And this is something that I didn't, I've, I've read this story so many times, but it's never jumped out to me as it did when I read it this time. You have the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the doctors of the law. What is their response? They know where the Savior is supposed to be born. They know immediately from the scriptures that he is going to be there. What do they do? There is no action on their part. We're never told that the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees make the trip over to Bethlehem to see where Jesus is. Bethlehem is in their back garden. That's right. Bethlehem is literally 10 kilometers away. It was walking distance. They could reach it in two hours. If this is the prophecy, if this is who is fulfilled, if this is God himself lying in the manger, if this is the voice from heaven that they've been waiting 400 years for, isn't it worth the 10 kilometer walk to go and check it out? Right. But they don't. They never get up and go. They never get up and go. They stay in one place. And the thing about this is that the second reaction to truth is that of indifference or apathy. Yes. Okay. Christ is Lord. He stepped into this world to save it. He's come in here to make a difference. He's come here to give us salvation. Great. Wonderful. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. But it's not going to change how I live my life. 
you might not be against it, but you might not do anything about it. You might take the view of apathy and say, okay, well, I still have my own hopes and dreams, and so I'm just going to, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'll come to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll pray, and then I'll carry on with my life, and Jesus will stay in the manger, or Jesus will stay in Bethlehem, or Jesus will stay in the church, or Jesus will stay in my Bible by my bedside table. And whatever I read has no response to the rest of my life. And I think this is the category that most Christians tend to fall in. They've been saved, they've been redeemed, but Christ is not their Lord. They haven't made him Lord of their life. And they haven't made the decision that they are going to follow him in everything. That's right. That they are going to serve him and treat him as if he was the authority over their life. And so the response to him is that of indifference. But notice something very important over here. Notice something so important. Who were the people who later ended up passing Jesus over to the Romans for execution? The scribes and the Pharisees. Who became the biggest stumbling blocks to Jesus's mission across his life? That's right. The scribes and the Pharisees. And so here's something very important to keep in mind. The indifferent never stay indifferent for long. Those who think that, well, this doesn't mean anything to me. I don't have to take any action on this. I can just let it slide. Will not let things slide for very long. Generally, those who have indifference and those who are ambivalent to truth will always naturally slide into the category of those who hate it. And so the chief priests who wanted nothing to do with it earlier and didn't care about it ended up being the ones who eventually had him executed later. That's right. As Elijah said on Mount Carmel, having that discussion with the children of Israel, when there was a showdown between him and the prophets of Baal, he says, how long will you sit on the fence? How long will you halt between two opinions? You can't do that. Either serve God or serve Baal. But you can't take this middle road and say, oh, whichever one proves to be the best service to me in my life, I will follow them. He says, you're not given that choice. You have to decide. And so the ambivalent eventually make their way naturally towards the other side. But then there is the third way. And that is what we see in the wise men. And let's close with this. Uh, can you read uh, verse, verse 9 onwards? When they'd heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they'd opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Okay, perfect. So now we get, this is the third response. This is the third response that people have to truth. When they encounter the Lord and they encounter his truth and they encounter the reality of his lordship over their life, they fall on their knees and they worship 
and they look at their life and they say, what, what is it that I'm holding back from you? Lord, let me give it to you. Even the treasures that might feel dearest to our heart, even the things that might feel the most personal to us, the things we consider most valuable, even those things we lay down before the feet of the king. Even those things we lay down before the feet of our Lord. I think it's almost poetic that after they bow down before Jesus, and after they bow down before the Lord, they get up and they go back to their country a different way. They don't go back to the king. They don't go back to the priest. They don't go back to the way things were before. They go a different way. Wow. And I think that's kind of almost poetically symbolic that when you surrender your life to the Lord and when you allow his truth to influence the way that you think and the way that you see yourself and the way that you see the world, it will change your life and you will see things in a different way and you will act like a different person. And that's because his spirit will change your heart and give you the heart that is loving and give you the heart that is kind and give you a heart that is filled with the fruits of the spirit where you will manifest that love and that joy and that peace and that patience and all the other fruits of spirits that is there because you have surrendered your life to him. And as Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Yes. That is an example of a surrendered life. And that life is one that is empowered. That life is one that is transformed. That life is one that is changed. And that life is the only life that can truly make a difference here in this world for the right. Amen. And so I guess just to close and leave everyone with, just ask yourself the question, if this is true, if Christ really has come into the world to be Lord and King, and if he truly has come as the fulfillment of the new creation to truly show us the way that we are meant to be living from the beginning and the only way that peace and happiness and love can truly flourish in this world. How am I responding to that? What is my current response? Am I against it? Am I fighting it either unconsciously or consciously? Am I saying that I accept it, but it's not producing any change in my life and I'm indifferent to it and Jesus stays in the manger or in Bethlehem or in the church building or on my nightstand? Or am I truly accepting his lordship, getting down on my knees and worshiping him and then getting up and going a different way and allowing his word and his truth to truly transform my life? Because that is what each one of us is called to. And as Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1, he says, I beseech you that you present yourself as a living sacrifice unto God, for this is your true, honest, and acceptable worship. Thank you very much, Simon. Well, thank you very much, David. I didn't really do anything except sit here and listen. That was fascinating. That was so interesting. By the way, what would you like to title this class? Do you, do you have a title for it? 
I like to call it the Clash of Kingdoms. Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, that's a good title. Well, because if the kingdom of God is coming into the kingdom of this world, obviously there's going to be a clash. And that's for sure. Well, thanks so much, David. And listeners, stay tuned for another class from David coming soon, which will cover the second half of Matthew chapter 2. And if you want to join David's Zoom class and work your way with David through the whole book of Matthew, then go to patreon.com and search for Dive Deep with Dave. Well, that's it for this week. Let's go out with an instrumental to allow you time to reflect on all that you've just heard. And this one was just sent to me by Jeremy Spencer. It's called Implacable Love. God bless and keep you until we meet again for another International Nightlight Show. Bye for now.